Blog Talk Radio. Of his first book, 
which was published back in 1989, Healing Visualizations, which is still in print. The uh, CD company, Nightingale Conant, has produced several of Jerry's CD sets, including the Phoenix Process. He maintains a private practice in New York City and teaches this method of using mental imagery for healing to healthcare practitioners throughout through his school known as the American Institute for Mental Imagery. He's been teaching classes to the public for literally decades, as well as via distant learning as well. Visit his website, www.drjerryepstein, J-E-R-R-Y-E-P-S-T-E-I-N.org, to learn more about this ancient system of healing that Dr. Epstein has been uh, really instrumental in bringing forward into the the uh, current consciousness. So for that, we actually owe Jerry a great debt uh, based on his deep commitment to healing and the use of mental imagery for it. So Dr. Gerald Epstein, are you on the line with us? Yes, Mitchell. Thank you for that mild introduction. And <laughs> you know, when you have a track record like yours, Jerry, it takes a while to really let people know, and it's actually more extensive than that, but that gets to, you could say, the core of the subject, which is really your work that you've been so dedicated to and the use of imagery, and I'd love for you to tell our audience about it. Some of them will know very well about the use of mental imagery, and others not so much. So I'd really appreciate it if you'd take it from the top, and we'll go from there. Sure. I just wanted to make, uh, I was going to say, actually, uh, thank you, Mitchell, and in closing, and uh, but I thought better at that. <laughs> but I just wanted to make one correction. Thank you about my book, sure. Visualizations, being published in 1989. Actually, I published two books before that in 1980, Studies in Non-Deterministic Psychology, and 1981, oh. Waking Dream Therapy, Exploring. Yes. Yeah consciousness through imagination and dreaming so uh, uh, yes, I i've been uh, so, i've been around for a long time you know we have to add right it's funny because last time i saw you you look like about 39 yes and uh i don't look a day over i guess 30 the imagery so, works uh yes it does because it's uh probably the greatest anti-aging tool that we know uh, Interesting. But essentially oh you're gonna have to tell our audience about that for sure <laughs> for sure well, so what uh, what is the what what is the crux of I mean everybody knows about things such as changing your diet and even changing your thoughts and sleeping well and exercising well and hydrating and there's so many holistically oriented naturally oriented um methods for uh dealing with and remedying one's physical illnesses. But this takes us to a different dimension, which I very much appreciate. Talk to us about the kinds of uh, work you've done over these years with it and the kinds of effects you've had. Well, uh, it, I think you're right on target. Uh, those processes that you mentioned are all part of the natural health system, yeah. which I think is gaining a foothold in consciousness in people's lives and becoming more attuned to uh, becoming healthy, and therefore what's happening from that is uh, extending life. And you'll notice that none of that has come through the medical uh, establishment, really. It's come through uh, right. people's uh, 
own ground root, gra- uh, uh, grassroots exploration of various modalities yeah. in the physical realm yeah. that can contribute we to health. We could die a few times, Jara, if we were waiting for the uh, AMA to come up with such good ideas as these. Right. No, they... It's not in that model. It's not that there's a no. blame. There's nothing in that model that speaks to that. It's not addressing any of these matters. Right. So, and the matter I'm speaking about is not addressed either, which is the use of a natural resource that we're born with, uh, which relies on our own inherent process of what we call the natural and true language of the mind, which is called image. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be uh, akin to what. Uh, would be analogy to it would be called hier- uh, hieroglyphs. This is mental hieroglyphs. Uh, the, the the hieroglyphic language of the pharaonic tradition, the ancient Egyptian mm-hmm. wisdom, yeah. was posted on walls. You know, and and they were described in uh, in pictorial terms, the inner language, because this is the natural and true language. What's called in the in the direction of spirit of the Western tradition, the divine language. It's a language mm-hmm. that's given to us from invisible reality, and it's passed through uh, invisible reality to us invis- into visible reality through a information inner information superhighway called the mind. So in this tradition, the mind has an entirely different definition than you usually uh, see, either in the consciousness fields or in the uh, in the uh, conventional fields has a much different direction because it's talking about a um, a channel of communication between two uh, existences, one invisible and one visible. The ancient tradition of the West has as a major motto to it uh, throughout the tradition of the uh, the ancient mosaic monotheistic tradition, the hermetic tradition, which are the two major forces out of which th- this tradition has sprung. Uh, mm-hmm. That as above, so below, and as below, so above. So there's an analogous relationship between what's not visibly perceptible to our senses right here, and what's visibly perceptible to our senses right here. So that interface between the two is uh, made available to us that we can gain access to that source and fount of wisdom that exists in the divine reality. And use that for purposes of bringing wholeness and uh, integration to our lives. So this mm-hmm. is really an integrative practice using this natural and true language that we're born with. So uh, it says in the ancient wisdom that we're born in the image and likeness of the divine. Yeah. Image means we're born with the immortal seed, and likeness means that we're that we're born with the uh, uh, the characteristics, the the moral character to uh, carry out this tradition of divine living here on earth. So we're making the invisible world, or the vertical world as it's called, available and informative and directive of the ver- of the horizontal world. Mm-hmm. So this language comes to us in a three-dimensional form. So it's a picture language. It's different from the three-dimensional forms that surround us in the everyday life because it has no volume and mass. So it comes to us in a flash, so to speak. It arises and it falls, but it carries with it an incredible amount of information that we can learn to read, and that's what I do in my work. I teach people how to read this. I have a New York State Regents Charter Training Center to train all healthcare professionals in this kind of work to learn how to read these glyphs. I have a, a, 
school for the general public, a educational school in Western spirituality, which teaches people how to read these glyphs, how to read these images, because they contain the knowledge of ourselves, but not in a form that's discursive like we're talking in. We're not talk- we're talking in words. We're talking in a verbal language. This yes. is an exoteric language. It's an outside language. You and I are talking this way. Yes. The inner language. In other words, we learn it from our environment, whereas you're suggesting the esoteric imagery language is one that you could almost say um, lifts up from the soul. Exactly. So as a soul language, it's in subjective. That is, it's not concerned with the so-called objective time-space reality that's around us but rather it's subjectively accessed. And the interesting thing about it is that when you when you access the images, which is a very simple process to learn, uh, you are getting an objective experience of truth that's revealed yeah. to you by these images, but they don't have volume and mass, so they don't have uh so they don't have duration. They don't exist in the same plane as this. So they exist in what we call a no time zone. And when you say, well, you know you look younger, uh, yes, because in the no time zone, there's no aging. Uh, So you are, uh, because aging is a direct function of time, the movement of past to future is a direct function of the movement of time, the the arrow of time, which carries with it. The eternal now. It's the eternal now, not related to either the, the future, which doesn't exist for us, which is uh, an illusion from our point of view. It's uncreated, although we're conditioned to treat it as though it's as though it's here now that it's that it exists. And uh, neither is it connected to the past, which is over, finished, ended, buried, gone, done, and no longer exists. So both these realms are illusional, and they are untruths. So the now is where everything exists. It's what we call the isness. Of experience, it's the isness. It's the Gospel of Thomas. Thomas said in the Gospel of Thomas, he said, "Know what's in front of your face, and everything will be revealed to you." So know the isness. Know what's directly here. What's the fact? And you separate the fact from all of the other untruths that surround it, that it tried to expand it, distort it, and so forth. So the imagery gives you a direct experience in no time of the fact of the matter, of another level of existence, other planes of existence that are available to us that gives us ways to change habits, heal conditions, change relationships, open up creative channels in our lives, and give us direction for living in many different ways. So all the work that I've dedicated myself to in my life has been along this way since I met my teacher of blessed memory in 1974 and had my original experience with her in the first five minutes of meeting where I had an illuminative experience, what might be called, from another perspective, an enlightenment experience where I became a being of light. Mm-hmm. And I lost all identifications with this world, which is what happens in an illuminative, highly spiritualized uh, enlightenment experience. Yeah. So you lose all contact yeah. and all identifications cease. So I became the, a body of light. With the physical material world and all the things you've identified yourself with. So when I came back out of the experience within the first five minutes, just came out of a conversation I had with her. And I had this illuminative experience and when I arose, when I I came back here 
I said to myself, uh, a couple of things came immediately to my consciousness. One, I'm no longer a psychiatrist, no longer an MD, no longer mm-hmm. a psychoanalyst. In other words, all uh-huh. those identifications were lost. And I said there was a truth here that suddenly dawned upon me that I must follow this truth no matter what. Whatever the consequences could be from following this truth, I have to have it. I have to go after it. That was the element of faith where I took an unconditional action without regard to the to the consequences, the conclusions, the, uh, re, the results, uh, and so far the outcomes. It didn't matter. Those are all the mistakes within the materialistic philosophical systems because they're all concerned with outcomes, results, future talk. So they're all yeah. uh, concerned future with what talk. doesn't exist, what an with the untruth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so you certain you you most many people are devoting their lives to the realm of untruth and of falsehood and of illusion, yeah. uh, and trying to control it, which is the false conditioning that we've been miseducated to. So when I came back, all of those identifications were gone, and the unconditional action was, I'm going after this. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what's going to become. Which is a true, which is a true statement and a true step of faith. And uh, when I came back out of it, uh, she said to me, uh, "This was interesting to you, right?" Uh, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. This was really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I said, "You bet it was." She said, "Would you like to learn more?" I said, "Of course, I want to learn more." Interesting is quite not the you word. Know, quite an <laughs> yeah, it was another statement. <laughs> right. And she said, "We'll come back tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, and we'll begin the work." And that started me on a nine-year apprenticeship, in which I became and initiate into this Western spiritual tradition through her uh, aegis as a master teacher. So we focused on a number of items. One was this imaginal experience, which takes place in what we call a no-time zone. Now, with this this particular um, spiritual tradition you're referring to, the Kabbalistic tradition? Well, it it has its origins within the tradition of the patriarchs and the... uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in the prophets uh, of the ancient Israelite tradition. And it has okay. some roots in the Pharaonic tradition and the Hermetic tradition, which was uh, exemplified in ancient Greece and also ancient Egypt. So okay. it has its roots there, and you see its explication within the uh, wisdom tradition of, of um, the Bible, and you can read the first 28 lines of Ezekiel, and you get a clear explication, a clear, a clear introduction to this imaginal realm and what can be mm-hmm. discovered. So you're going inwardly to um, to uh, gain access to a realm of existence called storehouse consciousness, in which all of the knowledge resides for us, being made in the image and likeness. All the knowledge exists for us, and we've been imbued with it from the outset. So the the way to gain the access is to turn your senses away from the external world, turn your senses inward, and that puts you in a different dimension in which your senses gain access to the storehouse consciousness, this awareness and consciousness in which the images are present as the body of knowledge that exists because it is the divine language between invisible and visible reality. So once you discover... These, these this language, even though you you don't learn it in the way I teach it, and you're not going to know how to immediately 
uh, read them. It's like you know, learning the language of Italian or French or Spanish or whatever other sure. exoteric language. It's a language you learn to read. You inherently know. It's given to us to know what it's telling us, and it gives us direction to change our lives. So consequently, I'd like to make a distinction, Jerry, for our audience because yeah. you are doing this beautiful um, description of this absolutist and subjective dimension that is spiritual by definition, which is utterly beautiful. But most people, if they think about mental imagery, they're probably thinking about such things as visualizations, which occupy a certain kind of parallel role to the idea on the exoteric language level of affirmations, of imagining uh, thoughts, or actually, I'm sorry, images, that would, in a sense, um, awaken, that would elevate their spirit in a way and create light that could possibly um, beneficially affect their organs. And what I hear you saying is that while all of that may be true, the roots of all of this are much deeper than you would find in a book, let's say, on spirit, on uh, visualizations that you would find at the, at the corner store. Well, you see, you, you, you put this very well. We're not dismissing that. You notice that right. the book that you mentioned that's been out uh, since 1989 and it's been published in 14 languages in 16 countries and pirated in three other countries called yeah. Healing, <laughs> Healing Visualizations, Creating Health Through Imagery. Yeah. Uh, Banta, a Banta uh, publication. book that actually made you f rather famous. It's worldwide. the one that yeah, became the worldwide bestseller and, and established exactly. my reputation as an authority in this field. And, and let's, led to let's all also the add to this let me also add, Jerry, something I think that you, you've actually touched upon, but I want to really make it uh, explicit to our audience that you, who come from uh, a New York Jewish medical background yourself, with all of the classic training as a psychiatrist, went to Israel, to Jerusalem, on this, you could say, calling, and you started to give no mind no pun intended, to this identification as a prestigious MD psychiatrist from New York City that the world would usually confer upon you. And when you returned, you had no care for the morrow. You didn't care about that prestigious position in no. exchange for this deep, alignment to the experience that you had in your teacher Colette's presence. Yeah, to the world. I dedicated exactly correct. I dedicated myself to the world of spirit and I said and that's what the illuminative it's an experience awesome, you brought. you exemplify an awesome um progression for human beings if you don't mind my saying and especially for um physicians who would after such intense training would be willing to put it aside on some important levels in exchange for a much deeper relationship to life and healing. So I'm, I'm really you touch on one of the You touch on one of the unusual experiences that came out of this because, <clears throat> you see, I took a risk. Yeah. Uh, I followed faith. So yeah. uh, so I took, I, tr I had trust in the, yeah. in the sincerity and... Uh, 
truthfulness of herself and her mastership. Right. And I had and faith the reality of what it is you experienced. I mean, what in I experienced, it was right there. But what yeah. I did was I gave up all the attachments to the uh, to everything else. Yeah. And uh, really followed as I learned later on. You know, Buddha said that human suffering is inevitable, uh, and this is true all through the traditions. It's one thing he said that carries through all of the traditions. That human yeah. suffering is inevitable, and the source of all suffering is attachment. Mm-hmm. So the work that I uh, developed from that initial meeting with her in the apprenticeship was developing mm-hmm. a healthcare system based in detachment, giving up our det- attachments in a certain way to our materialistic aims and desires here in the time-space world, living in the time-space world, but in a way that in which you live in it, but you're not of it, so yeah. that you sort of hover above and you're not caught in the uh, what might be called the uh, the uh, pull down into the uh, gravitational field of the electrical yeah. sea of death. So you're not pulled <laughs> down into the into that swirl. You stay above yeah. it, and that's really a spiritual uh, attitude and direction that Dimension. you take. And the healing that comes from that is to be abs- to be absolutely accepting and open to everybody's possibilities and everybody's isness. The way they are, without being judgmental, without setting a standard for every, anybody, without a, a man-made standard intervening, no ideal that anybody had to prove to me or to develop or fulfill in themselves, no man-made ideal, uh, no mm-hmm. man-made standard, uh, no proving of any of that, so that they would begin to withdraw from this man-made idea of good, bad, right, wrong, uh, uh, better, worse, uh, sufficient the polarities led, and dualities all the, all the duality polarities which is the world we're born into Indeed. and the idea of spirit is to extricate yourself from these identifications with these man-made standards uh, and these uh, I, and these self-imposed ideals and self-improvement that uh, is so often fobbed on TV and in many of these self-help books and so on. Well, we're completely but, programmed and conditioned. Do you feel that after all of these years of dedicated service to the truth, to this unconditional spiritual dimension, uh, that you have been able to, number one, remain true to it and very much grow in that space while having your feet planted on earth? Continuously yep. planted on earth. I become as a tree. So I'm completely, completely. So I'm tra- so I'm rooted to the earth, and live in the most practical sense of life, which is a spiritual sense of a t- of approach to the everyday life. Because mm-hmm. this practice teaches you, my way of teaching is how to live your everyday life in a new way, so that you're free of the habitual behaviors and the and the regimented behaviors, which can be narrowing and constricting, and damaging to your life. And that as a tree, I grow and radiate, and I'm constantly developing my uh, my uh, self-knowledge and self-awareness. So consciousness is deepening and broadening and expanding all the time. And this is what I translate into the teaching that I teach people. Uh, so uh, imagine the- that someone comes to you, that there are audience members who have habits, for instance, uh, that they are unhappy with and they were to come to you, let's say um, it could either be um, an eating habit or a drinking habit or 
something sure. of that sort, so it, or, so, or negativity that they're they're well, you always you, angry. So yeah. you keep a part. So you've asked, you know, you've really asked a really pertinent question here because it touches on what I was going to uh, to say from this point, which was when I started with this work in 1974, came back after this illuminative experience and. Uh, had my stint with her for over about a four-week period or six-week period and came back. And I was isolated here because there was no one else who was doing this work as far as I understood. So I was alone in the community, and I became ostracized eventually from the psychoanalytic community, the MD psychoanalytic community and so on, when they found out what I was doing, etc. But how I I separated myself was at that time so many people were getting into the therapeutic field. Social workers and psychologists were being permitted to practice and see people in therapy. So a lot of people were doing therapy uh, yeah. of various sorts. So a lot of therapists. It was the seventies. It was the nineteen seventies, man. Yes. It was <laughs> right. bringing up after the Vietnam War and all that stuff. Correct. So how I distanced myself in that way, how I separated myself to have a, a, a unique uh, stake in this, because I, you know, all of my work started with looking at the at the psychological, so-called psychological or emotional mm-hmm. disturbance field as a psychiatrist and as an analyst that I began to see and I began to understand in this uh, in this way of understanding health, not medicine, but health, mm-hmm. that uh, I got to learn that health, the, the etymological root of the word health, gives rise to the word heal, whole, health, and holy. Oh, That's right. I got to understand. And hallowed. And hallowed. And hallowed and yes. wholesome <laughs> and so on. So you got right. to realize that in this equation, there's an intimate relationship between the invisible and visible world. There's an intimate relationship between what's not available easily to grasp, such as your mental life and your physical life are intimately related, that there's an essence from which we come and there's an existence that's birthed out of that essence, which is the basis of the Western tradition, and that they're all connected. So I began to develop and understanding that there's uh, not a cause and effect system as there is in the materialistic worldview, but there's there's a reflective system, as you mentioned in the introduction, Mm -hmm. mental, emotional, uh, physical, social, moral, environmental, are all interrelated. They're all mirroring each other. That above and below are mirror reflections of each other. That We're all a reflective system. Operating what I call Jerry the House of Mirrors, the Hall of Mirrors. Right. The Hall of Mirrors, yeah. and reflecting each each of those, reflecting each other simultaneously at the same moment, even though you might not be aware of it. Yeah. I teach you how to see these reflections and how they operate. Be that as it may, I started seeing that people coming to me in the mid seventies when I returned, that they would come to me with physical, with emotional disturbances. And it occurred to me, of course, out of this illuminative experience, I say to them, do you also have some physical ailment that's bothering you at the same time? They said, sure. And and every single person I would talk to about their presenting with an emotional or mental issue, and a a physical disturbance was also present. Of course, because it was a unitary experience. It's a unitary system. It's not fragmented and broken up as the modern medical and psychological systems are. They're not cause and effect in one you know, uh, and so and the physical being the There's basis. There's a mind-body continuum, continuum that has to be reflective of the spiritual of realm of everything. Uh, so, it's right. a physical, a mental, emotional. The mind is the channel of communication, bringing all these messages of information. 
through the uh, through the focus of image, which contains all the knowledge. So I began to see it happening, and so what I did. So what happened is that people began to come to see me with cancer uh, because they had good success with some physical disturbance that they came that they happened to bring up with the emotional we worked on, changing it, reversing it, turning it around, and they would start to heal. So they sent other people with more serious conditions. And so out of that grew a uh, unique practice that I got to be known for, that I could see people coming with emotional presentation, mental presentation, family presentations, social disturbances, physical disturbances. It didn't matter because it's a unitary system. So no matter what you present with, we're going to see the whole pattern emerging of all of the reflections going on. And I know to ask these questions. So people would come to me with allergies, and I wouldn't ask them, what are you allergic to? Our first question is, who are you allergic to? Somebody would come with a headache and say, I have headaches, and I would say, who's the headache in your life? You see? Mm -hmm. And then I began to see people with, let's say, women with breast cancer. And I would begin to ask them, uh, who did you lose in a relationship? And they said, my husband announced he was leaving me, and the cancer came. You see, and those kinds of things began began to become much more apparent because I was operating from an ancient healthcare system, not a medical system, a healthcare system that saw the relationships going on within all of these functions. So uh, Hold that, that then thought for led one to moment, Jerry. Hold that thought. We want to let everyone know who is listening that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time or Eastern Standard Time on Blog Talk Radio. We're very glad you're joining us. Uh, today, we are spending the first hour with Dr. Gerald Epstein, who is most recently the author of the Encyclopedia of Mental Imagery, and he has been the author of numerous books on this subject, which he's discussing with us right now, and the very uh, essence the embodiment of the use of mental imagery for healing. And we're learning a lot about its use coming from the spiritual realm to apply to the physical material realm. It's fascinating material. And then stay tuned because for the second half of today's show, we will be joined by Samuel and Linda Bonder from the Waking Down Tradition, which they commenced, and we'll be spending a good amount of time speaking with them about that. So please stay tuned. So, Dr. Epstein, please continue. This is Okay, so uh, and I'm glad you mentioned all those publications um, because if you go to my website, you're going to see them all listed and you can avail yourself of uh, getting hold yeah. of them, uh, all these yeah. CD sets. I also have done um, successful, uh, four successful research studies in uh, treating asthma with mental imagery under the auspices of the National Institutes of Health, successful Excellent. research with that. and uh, I love also, that the National Institute would fund something like that. Yes, and, and that was way back in 1993 when there was a great push, a groundswell, yes. to get involved yeah. in the holist, what they call the holistic field. And then mm -hmm. I did successful research in, health, in heart strength, uh, heart, increasing heart strength and heart strength variability. Uh, which is an important element to heart strength. And I did uh, two successful studies at James Madison University amongst college students. Uh, one of Have which you is been able over the years, Jerry, I'm just kind of uh, 
interrupting this for a moment of of actually getting any hard data of the people that you've worked with or your many, many students have worked with and collated data as to the effects of the mental imagery on well, you'll see in all of my publications, physical results. If you see in all of my publications, yeah. all of my publications, I give illustrations. So beside the Healing Healing Visualizations book, there are plenty of illustrations in there about people who have uh, what's happened to them. So we have a tremendous amount of clinically-based evidence, which you must make as a distinction from medically-based evidence. Medically-based evidence is based on research. Clinically-based evidence is based on what's there right in front of your face and how people have changed. And when I went on national TV with many different uh, patients, who had healed from uh, breast cancer, ulcerative colitis, uh, uh, cancer of the liver, uh, and uh, malignant melanoma, all, all the kinds of things that I came, and prostate cancer and so on. Because you asked mm-hmm. about changing habits. And yeah. uh, so I have many, many in my book, Healing into Immortality, I have many illustrations of a man who healed from uh, blindness, um, optic nerve atrophy, and so on. So all kinds of things, and everything I've ever written about or taught, I've always given techniques and methods. You'll find a tremendous amount of this on the website under uh, the imagery processes that I've published there. Not in, And with this book, plus all of these other books, all of this other research studies, all of these uh, uh, CDs, and so on and so forth, I've published nearly 3,000 imagery exercises. Nobody mm-hmm. has this kind of track record. No one. Oh, so it's when encyclopedic. The, it's encyclopedic. It's encyclopedic. And when you got when my you get question to that, is in a world when, in a world of science um, and statistics, uh, has there been a study, sort of a la a double blind study, which has shown the use of mental imagery in one group and not the use of it in another that, group? That's yeah. what I was reporting to you. The imagery with asthma which was done yeah. under the auspices of the National Institute of Health at Lenox Hill Hospital here in New York City. Mm-hmm. And the uh, two studies with the students at James Madison University, 90 students, 30 of whom underwent imagery, 30 of whom underwent affirmations, 30 of whom did nothing. And in these two studies, the uh, which was recorded on, the, on computer graphic analysis as part of the quantitative one, part of this, and the qualitative questionnaire about this there, um, quality of life and so on that took place after this and so on and so forth the imagery work far out distance the affirmations and the just the simple thought process about thinking about their, their heart from time to time as it would occur to them and do that and so on so these are two these were four studies done under that scientific methodology which is a uh, in itself a flawed methodology but nonetheless yeah. was held under those auspices and yeah. we showed clearly the It uh, is a flawed methodology, and I think that's a very fair and reasonable thing to assert, and people ought to know that. But we do live in the room. Well, no, so, I, so I've been, able to, I've been yeah. able to furnish that. And in the asthma study, we had the people doing imagery and the people who were seeing their own doctors for asthma without any, without any of this uh, being given to them. So... Yeah. Um, in that regard, and no doubt, and I know you have, I know you have, God knows, hundreds, if not thousands, of 
anecdotal reports from clients, patients, students that have experienced uh, notable, if not significant and radical, changes in their physical and emotional health through well, the Well, you see, because we have... The, the, you see, the word anecdote <clears throat> uh, has a uh, has bad press, really. The word anecdote re- means really clinically based evidence. If I ha- yeah. if a patient comes to me who has uh, cancer, and uh, we do some uh, process uh, yeah. with the imagery and so on, and they go back and they are examined, and the cancer has disappeared, that's clinically based evidence because that's we right. have they have the lab test, they have the uh, uh, the uh, radiological test, they have all that so-called medical evidence at hand to show that when they, what was going on before and now what's going on after. So that's very clear that there's a distinction that has been clearly made since the, inter, the, the uh, intervention of the imagery is the only thing new that has taken place. Yes. And I've had this happen with people coming with prostate, enlarged prostate, six people who came with a large prostate where the doctors told them, look, we can only watch it and there's nothing else we can do. If it gets to a point where you're unable to urinate and it really cuts off that, then we'll have to operate. So they came with no interventions because there's no other treatment that could be given. And women yeah. with ovarian cysts that came and were told we can just watch the cyst. If it gets too large or it bursts, unfortunately, we'll have to operate. All we can do yeah. at this time is just watch it because there's nothing else we can give you. And these people come without any other intervention or nothing new. And then this is exposed and things change. So uh, phobias disappear. Uh, Obsessional disturbances disappear. Uh, So all of these habitual behaviors that you've talked about changes because we give you ways to access your own natural resources of your own will, that is your spark of life, to use your will in your behalf to change your life so that you're operating from an inner position of changing your belief systems and changing your conceptions and misconceptions and misperceptions about life, mm-hmm. giving ways to do that immediately, and then you birth something else in your life. Because the basic point from the, from the, from the point of view of spirit and all the traditions is that what you conceive, you'll birth. It's analogous to a woman conceiving, a man and woman conceiving a child. The woman then is impregnated, she's fertilized, and she's and she's holding this child, this fetus in the, in the, her in her womb. And nine months later, she gestates it there. And nine months later, it's birth. If mm-hmm. we change your belief, uh, we hold it in the womb of consciousness, in the form of the image. The image is the uh, uh, the shorthand for the belief. So we have a spark of life called the will, which is a direction that you take, a, du- a direction of your will, to move in a, in a new direction of life, which is your intention. You conceive something different from the way you have been conceiving your belief. I'll never meet a man. I'll never meet a woman to be able to be married. That's the belief you come in starting with. Yeah. So I educate you to understand, look, you can't speak to me in language. You and I, Mitchell, cannot talk like this unless you understood its opposite. Yeah. So you could never have said to me, you know, Jer, I'll never have a successful radio TV 
uh, uh, shows. I'll never make a success in this direction that I'm taking in life. And I'd say to you, Mitchell, you couldn't possibly say that to me unless you understood its opposite. Because you mm-hmm. can't speak in the language without knowing its opposite. So yeah. you can't say to me, Jerry, you know it's daytime out. And I say, of course, you can't know it's daytime unless you understood night. And you can't say, you know, that person's tall. You say, I'd say you couldn't say to me tall unless you understood short. That's so right. you can't say you to know, me fat unless you, under, you, unless you understood book, thin. You're, you're totally right. And I, I am opening up the book, Jerry, the Encyclopedia of Mental Imagery that you are speaking from in this interview. And I was struck by a quote by Colette on the prayer of Rabbi Nachman of Breslau for depression. And to quote her, she said, he was clinically depressed but lived in joy. Yeah, correct. <laughs> that so, is awesome. <laughs> now, we go further. If you're, if you're depressed, I ask you, <clears throat> um, what are you depressed about? And you're going to give me an answer that's in the past or in the future. If you're anxious or in any distressed feeling state, it's always about something in the future or the past, something that doesn't exist. So your emotional state is the fuel stoking the engine of, of, misconception, of misconceptions about life. Gotcha. So you give me the misconception, you know, I'll never have a successful show. Mitchell, you can't say that to me unless you understood the opposite. Mm-hmm. What do you mean the opposite? <clears throat> because you can't say... I can never have a successful show unless you understood the opposite. Successful show. Yes. So I'm I'm having successful show, and I'd say to you, Mitchell, what does that look like? And uh, uh-huh. say, what do you mean? What does it look like? I'd say, well, Mitchell, what does calm look like? You can ask the audience out there now who's listening to this. This the millions of people around the world listening. What does calm look like? Most everybody will naturally say an image right away if I ask you what does it look like you'll give me an image of calm do you have an image of calm yes what sure Um, what's the image a peaceful looking lake lake so you have a peaceful looking lake water and water peaceful looking water still water whatever it is they're an image that comes because every word every discursive statement every word has its associated image which is not the same for everybody, but it has an associated image for everybody. So if I say to you, uh, uh, Mitchell, you're angry. What's the image of anger? The color red. Red. Many people will say a flame or a fire. Yeah. Or a fire-breathing dragon, right? Or yeah. something of that, something along those lines, right? So, something along yeah. the lines. Now I say, Mitchell, what's the image of success? Light, uh, a sunny day. With millions of people listening and their ears glued, their ears and eyes glued to the computer screen listening to this, and I see this line of people stretching around the world. Yes. <laughs> and all nodding, and all nodding yes. They're all nodding yes, right? Yes. So I ask you to see that image, say it, so you say to yourself, success, get that feeling and what any physical sensation that accompanies that. So you see it, say it, feel it, and sense it. 
Mm-hmm. And you do this a number of times a day because you dose it to yourself, just like you would dose anything in the medical field. If you were given a prescription, you would dose it, right? So you call up the you call up the feeling associated with the state that you want. And the state you, that you now re, not not that you want that you now suddenly have experienced in the no time zone, uh-huh. in the imagery zone. You okay. see, that's the real that's the truth and reality mixed. Together, they're mixed together. Truth and reality are not the same in the time-space world. When I was in the, when I was a resident in psychiatry low those many years ago, a guy came up to me on this locked ward when I was a first-year resident and said, "I'm Jesus Christ." And mm-hmm. of course, knowing what I know now, his experience is real. The feelings of anger are real. The feelings of depression are real. They're all real, but his feeling, his experience of Jesus Christ is real. But I said to him, if I know now, if I knew then what I know now, I'd say, by the way, at lunch, did you turn the water into wine? Mm-hmm. Was the guy who was hobbling around the ward on a crutch and wasn't able to walk, did you make him walk? In other words, were you able to invoke the same miracle experiences that the Master of Christianity did? And of course, the answer is no. So truth and reality are not the same. Truth and reality are not the same in this time-space world, necessarily. But the feelings are real. But if I, you say to me, I'm worried, Jerry, and I'd say, okay, that's real. Nobody can dispute that. That's a subjective experience of yours that's subjectively shared by most people in the entire world. And I'd say, Mitchell, what are you worried about? And you would say, I'm worried that nobody's going to be listening to the show tonight. You just gave me a statement in the future because most all the distressing feelings are either about the future or about the past, if I ask you for the context. I never disputed the, the feeling. It's real. I'm disputing the truth of that feeling, what it's connected to. Is your feeling the real? The conclusions, the inferences that are, that are gathered uh, from drawn it. from it are untrue. Your feeling is true and real. But the inference is drawn from what it's about, what it's attached to. Remember that Buddha said the source of all suffering is attachment. What it's attached to is untrue. It's uncreated. The future doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's an uncreated. It's not an isness. It's not the fact in front of your face. It's not a fact. Infer from that when you work with people, when the audience uh, applies these thoughts that you're sharing with us, Jerry. to themselves, the base of success, if you will, is staying in the present and not allowing oneself to get caught by the habit of going back into the past or projecting into the future, but staying with the feeling in the present and the imagery that wells up from within that connects. To displace that feeling to its opposite. So if you say to me, I'm worried, and uh, and I'd say to you, uh, okay, uh, Mitchell, what's the image of worry? See, because you're worried. What's the image of worry? You can't say it to me unless you understood the interrelationship of the invisible to the visible. You said mm-hmm. worry. So what's the image of worry? That invisible mm-hmm. realm. What's the image? So a person will say, uh, I feel like I'm being choked. I see hands around my neck. I would say to you, 
as this is imagination and anything can happen because it's a realm that's not governed by the rules of logic in the time-space world, take those hands off your neck. And if you can't, do it by yourself. Bring whatever you need to remove the hands from your neck and tell me how you feel. I feel relieved, right? Because it's an actual real experience. It's a, it's a, it's as sure. real as your this everyday. This is the power of imagination. This of is course, the power which is of as the real. Mind. It's as real every as your everyday real. experience here. It's as real as you're sitting down having a meal at a table eating. The imaginal world is as real as this world. Everything is real. There's nothing that's not real. Jesus, the fact Jesus is that Christ the mind is real. Cannot the mind cannot distinguish between what we refer to as real and what is not. It doesn't and, have to. Uh, what is vicarious it accepts, or it accepts, every, it accepts everything as real. That's yeah. not our issue. The issue is truth. And so our, body is follows the, our body follows what's in the mind as well. It has to because so, it's a unitary system, so it has to be reflecting. Correct. So it's all going on as one piece. So then I'd say to you, okay, now that we've taken, that we've reversed the worry, and I'd say to you then, what's the opposite of worry? And you would say, mm, peacefulness, right? Let's say it hypothetically. So when you feel worried, I would say to you, as soon as you feel the worry, don't fight it. Let it come. Let yourself use it as a teacher. Become aware. Become aware of the worry. It comes into your consciousness. You're unsettled by it. And that reminds you then to say to yourself, oh, peacefulness. What's the image of peacefulness? I see myself uh, lolling in a hammock. So So I turn the hands on my neck into lolling in a hammock in which I say to myself, seeing that, Peacefulness, get that feeling, and the sensation is connected with that. So you've now reversed the situation instantaneously. No psychology, just the isness of what's in front of our face. Indeed. And we've turned one into another. We've made a return, a repentance, a chuva, as it's called in the ancient, ancient tradition. Uh, we've the made return. a reverse. Yes. We reversed reverse. it. So I gave you two yes. ways of reversing of reversing the worry, going to its opposite, and also reversing the image itself of what it is and turning it yes. around. Would you, you say, see? Jerry, that you are reprogramming? Uh, are you reprogramming the mind? You're setting it into a new direction? You're setting it into a new direction so that you're creating a new habit, a new awareness, a new awakening, a new remembering of yourself, a new possibility for growth, all of this is taking new relationship that may form with somebody in your life. And every, and every situation that comes into your life in which you're disturbed in any manner, shape, or form, that you're disturbed physically and or emotionally and or mentally, mm-hmm. is connected to a social, disra- a social derangement in your life. It all is based on some social, moral de- uh, derangement that's taken place in your life experience. Mm-hmm. It always is. Mm-hmm. It never is without it. When you can say to me, this "Well, what about powerful. what about Three Mile Island?" There was I was just living there, and this nuclear facility blew up. And I would say to you, it's a social issue 
because you, along with all of us, permitted that to be built without proper investigation, without proper understanding what the possible consequences could be if there were a leak, all that kind of stuff was just glossed over and not or not looked into, and then a bill was passed in Congress without it being discussed. Mm-hmm. It's a social issue. Everything is based. The ancient healthcare system of the West starts from the basis in all the traditions of the West. Pharionic, hermetic, monotheistic starts from the basis that every disturbance starts from the social moral issue of life. Interesting. Well, we're now, have you to said before that. that, you know, we're yeah. looking to change habits and decondition mm-hmm. ourselves. You put it in that context. You didn't use that word exactly, right. but you were talking around that. That is the idea. Every tradition in the world, sure. every tradition in the world, no matter whether it's Buddhist, Hindu, Sufi, shamanistic, I don't care what the tradition is in the world, starts from the basis of detaching from the suffering and turning the habit around, yes. reversing it in whatever form they're going to give it to you, chanting the sutras in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, doing the Zen practice of the koans, the Hindu practice of Raja Yoga or any of the yogas, whatever you do, the zikrs in Sufism, it's all dedicated, or the davening in the synagogue of the Orthodox, it's sure. all it's all dedicated to reversing habits and deconditioning in whatever form right. is right. necessary for that culture to undertake. Whatever suits that culture and makes that culture familiar with it and acceptable. But it all starts Dr. from a social Gerald, in, our, in the West it starts from we, a social we, We're out of time, so you have oh, a sorry. moment to just wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've covered a lot of ground here. Um if you could, just wrap up your thoughts. Okay, so and, uh, the Encyclopedia of Mental Imagery you want to get, it's a, it's thematic, it covers tremendous, uh, many different areas of life that are uh, that are crucial to the themes of your life, like uh, personal restoration, deep cleaning from infancy, uh, the... Uh, um, Physical, emotional imbalance. Living in the moment, resurrection of the body, it goes on and on and on. Healing visualizations is a book that covers 80 different ailments, daily ailments, so it's not thematic. It deals with the habits of your everyday life physically and emotionally. Kabbalah for Inner Peace is how to deal with your everyday life situations that you face in the moment of your daily life living, like all the other stuff I teach, and how to change those daily life situations in your favor. Climbing Jacob's Ladder is identifying with the great uh, figures of the past and how you live out these archetypes and how they influence you in your daily life situation through imagery. Um, Then there's uh, The Natural Laws of Self-Healing, my CD set uh, from my Nightingale Conant, The Phoenix Process, which outlines my... Give your website, because we're we're out of time at this point. Uh, Go to find all of this. website, because you have all all of of that listed there. And all of this in drjerryepstein.org, D-R-J-E-R-R-Y-E-P-S-T-E-I-N.org. So thanks very much, Ray Mitchell, for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm so glad to have you on, and I really want to encourage you. Yes. Thank you so much. Love to everybody, and blessings to all of you. God bless. And you'll find me here. Great work, Jerry. And if you need me, I'm here in New York. If you need me, I'm here in New York City, and I'm always available. I'm never not available. (laughs) 
<laughs> Wonderful. Oh, we yeah. so appreciate your good work. Okay. A lifetime of good work and service to you, man. It's still going God on. Bless. Still going on a lifetime of service. Oh, yeah. you bet. It continues yeah. on. Yes, on. Beautiful. Bye, Very kids. Empty. Love you. Again so much. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye-bye. God bless. That's Dr. Gerald Epstein, who has truly been a pioneer in the field of healing. If you've been listening to the whole show, you can get really a glimpse of what he has been up to for all of these years. It's a profound experience that he had when he went to Israel, to Jerusalem, as a young uh, practitioner, as a young psychiatrist. And what did he encounter? But a woman who was born, Colette, into a uh, very interesting, prestigious, Kabbalistic family from Algeria. And she herself had moved from there to Jerusalem and was working with thousands of people who came in from all over the world to work with her. And she was able to basically reach their spiritual essence, their core, and start working with them from that level. And Jerry has been doing that the same since in New York City and elsewhere. And it's very much embodied in his books. So I really would encourage you to go to his website, www.jerryepstein.org, and uh, learn more about it. So uh, this is Mitchell J. Raven. I want to just thank you all for joining us tonight. And we are about to launch into an entirely other kind of communication and conversation with Samuel Bonder, uh, who I have had on the TV show. But let me all remind you that if you are not yet a a, uh, receiver of our newsletter, a Better World newsletter, which goes out weekly to announce our weekly TV and radio shows, please go to www.abetterworld.tv. Again, that is www.abetterworld.tv and sign up for the newsletter and become part of a Better World community. Every week, we are reaching out to audiences around the world, to countries around the world, Yes, it's in English, uh, and sometimes I guess it gets translated. And we are speaking about subjects such as these, about healing the human spirit, the human body, the mind, and reaching into the very depths of ourselves so that we can have a deeper understanding of the nature of our lives, the nature of reality. And then with this understanding, this precious understanding, having it reflected in the world outside us so that there's a continuum between the inner ecosystem, if you will, and the outer, that it's all truly one continuous Mobius strip and that we can see from that perspective is a rich one. It's an enlightened one. And those are the kinds of guests that we have here every single week, illuminating one subject or another along this path. So I so appreciate all of you joining us every week. And now we are going to take another turn of the wheel, as I said, and speak with the wonderful Samuel Bonder. And his wife, Linda, should be joining us, Linda Groves Bonder, if not at the beginning, very soon. Uh, Samuel, 
is the author of Healing the Spirit Matter Split, and he is the founder of the Waking Down in Mutuality work. He's a pioneer in the widespread embodiment and mutual evolutionary exploration of awakened consciousness for over a decade. Interestingly, uh, I don't know what this is, but born in New York to Jewish parents, just as Dr. Gerald Epstein was, and myself as well, uh, and growing up mostly in North Carolina, Daniel felt from an early age that he was going to be part of something that would change the course of human history for the better, indeed, which is why he keeps showing up on A Better World. And in fact, he really has. Just this week, he has been invited, he and Linda, to be part of Stephen Dynan's The Shift Network and is doing a whole presentation there, which he'll be sharing with us here and uh, how he is reaching so many more people through that and, of course, through A Better World uh, to awaken them, to educate them about these new possibilities that have to do with the awakening of the heart. It's interesting. His background is diverse from Harvard University to being founding members of Ken Wilber's Integral Institute. And when I had Samuel on the TV show, the primary subject was this awesome spiritual sci-fi fantasy novel called Ultimaya 1.0, a really rich text that if you have not heard of or read yet, I would certainly encourage you to do so. So without further ado, I'd love to bring Samuel on. Are you there? I am here. Can you hear me, Mitch? I can, Samuel. Excellent. So glad to have you back on, my friend. Thank you so much. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you and your your listeners, your wonderful audience. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. You're out on the West Coast. You've been busier than anything in presenting uh, your Waking Down Mutuality work. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that first, and then we'll go into some of the exciting things that have been going on with you. Okay, thanks very much. We'll do so. And uh, just to let everybody know, Linda will be joining us as soon as she can. Uh, maybe when she gets on, Mitch, uh, we can also introduce her a bit as well. Um, I'd be glad she's to. She's definitely my full partner in this um, wonderful and uh, and um, really, in many ways, marvelous and often quite challenging exploration that we've been doing. Yes. Uh, yeah, Waking Down Mutuality uh, is the name that emerged over the years. We often just call it Waking Down. And what happened with me uh, is that after an initial kind of waking up that happened when I was just 20 yes. years old, so that's now over 40 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, based on reading my first book that introduced me to yoga and mysticism of that kind, um, I developed. And what book was that, this, Samuel? Uh, it was Autobiography of a Yogi by uh-huh. Paramahansa Yogananda, which was a sure. very uh, popular book in our day. Um, yeah. And uh, I devoted myself to trying to uh, access that state and ultimately become established in it if it was possible. And what wound up happening, to cut through a lot of story over a couple of decades and more, Yes, 
what wound up happening was that when the state became permanent, it also, in effect, came down and really mm. opened up from my heart rather than being somehow seeming to be above the body and the mind and the world in some You mean instead of sort of dimension. you could say a mental phenomenon, it became a heart phenomenon, which is also a body one. A heart and whole being phenomenon, that's correct. And whole being, yeah. Right, Ra- yeah. rather rather than a, a high psychic phenomenon, that's right, high spiritual yeah. phenomenon of yeah. that kind. And so this uh, transition, uh, which uh, we came to call a second birth, because it, it feels and I think is as biological as it is spiritual, uh, mm-hmm. took place in late 1992, and... Within a short period of time, I began to feel uh, and get feedback from people I knew that, in effect, my state or presence was becoming contagious. It was starting to activate shifts and changes in them. Mm -hmm. I recognized that I had no interest in becoming kind of the king of uh, mm. uh, of a realm of subjects who would be loyal disciples and followers, I really wanted company. I wanted people to become yes. my peers in the process, not that I wouldn't have a unique role in some ways as the, the founder of what was getting underway. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, keeping this, the story pretty uh, brief here, that's exactly what's happened over the couple of decades since then. Um, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have duplicated this quite profoundly awakened condition, but in a a very deeply embodied way that we're now recognizing uh, more and more, and and many people in the leading edge uh, spiritual movement of our time. That that term embodiment has become very very uh, much of a focus. And yes. many of us are recognizing that spirituality is, as a mentor once said to me, it's not just evolutionary, it is itself evolving. So mm-hmm. waking down in mutuality is uh, a name for the three aspects of our work that have emerged over the years. The waking aspect being accessing and becoming stably identified with the infinite, impersonal, transcendental essence of spirit or consciousness. Mm-hmm. Down has to do with both uh, uh, this kind of bodily landing, uh, dropping a sense of, of that infinite nature, really finding its true home here in and as the body. And also mm-hmm. down has to do with and these go hand in hand, uh, a deep integration of the darker, or what's often called the shadow qualities in our psychological and emotional patterning, uh, the aspects of ourselves that are uh, triggered uh, and, and you know throw us into very uncomfortable conditions of reactivity. So the down part of the work involves really intensively getting in touch with all that and learning how to integrate the dark with the light, the negative with the positive. And the mutuality aspect is uh, the discovery of this uh, 
increasingly awakened or conscious capability and presence in relationship with others, you know, here in our ordinary uh, everyday lives and not merely as a kind of solo flight uh, into other realms or dimensions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's just a, a brief summary, but uh, part of a what's exciting, one. as you were indicating, is just how, I mean, this is a great time for our work. We really are excited that so many more people are being put in touch with it. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. No, that was actually an elegant description, Samuel, that I, and I'm sure the audience very much appreciated who are interested in this kind of inner awakening and development. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, the oft-used phrase, waking up, which we find in the Testaments and in the mouths of spiritual teachers across the planet uh, to then take the phrase and invert it so it's us waking up and it's like wait a minute is this guy some kind of spiritual comedian you know um, and I think it has a really useful effect because it breaks that habit just at the um, you could say at the outset you know at the door opening Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole idea of waking up is now waking down, and so one is given pause from the get-go. Well, what is that about? You know, so one can't just do the usual inward, uh, habituated routine with language. One is stopped in one's tracks and has to re reconfigure and recalibrate. Like, where are we going here? And the whole idea of uh, so much of spirituality seems that it's so it's it's a mental phenomenon for so many gurus who are teaching paths. But, of course, we all know, I'd say intuitively, that it's in the space of the heart that the most interesting phenomena of life occur. And it's not that we're not even using the mind there, because, for instance, the Chinese don't have a distinction between the mind and the heart. The thinking takes place in the heart, as it does in ancient indigenous traditions as well. So, Mm -hmm. no pun intended, you're embodying a lot in that one phrase. Yeah, thank you. Well, we, uh, we, we, that's what occurred to me early on. It's like, oh, this is not waking up. It's actually waking down. What's that all about? And how, how do we live that together? And you know, the the big impulse for me was uh, let's democratize this thing. I, I had seen yeah. too many spiritual adepts become the the reigning king or queen in among their in effect loyal right, subjects who never never wound up actually duplicating the basic awakening or realization. So indeed, we've been, indeed. We've been You're right. apple seeding this thing, and uh, it seems to be working yeah. pretty well. That is, I'm so pleased to hear this. I I have so appreciated that dimension of your works, Annual, that you have this democratization notion instead of a, um, you know, uh, from above to below notion that is the standard guru archetype. But you've really mm-hmm. broken that tradition as well. You know, it's it's worth noting. It's very much worth noting. Well, thank and you. Appreciate it, that. 
Yeah, sure. And and it's been moving forward in such a powerful way. And this is uh, very exciting because you're now in a position of reaching so many more people um, with this rather coherent um, idea and approach to um, waking up and down. Um, could you talk about something that you mentioned to me the other day about the four F's, I think this is a beautiful framing of of your thinking. Could you speak uh, more? Yeah, I could, that? Mitch. Um, let me, uh, I'm, I'm hearing your voice on Linda's phone, um, so I think Linda's called in. Uh, oh, she says she can't get on, so. Let me check in here. Yes, okay. indeed, she has. So let us bring her in to the will we'll now be a trialogue. This is wonderful. I'm so glad. Linda, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Well, yes. Linda, so glad to have you. Linda oh, thank you Bonder so much. It's great Linda to be Groves on the call. Bonder. I've been on for the last few minutes or so, and I'm really liking what I'm hearing from you guys. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> Join in on the fun, my dear. Join in on the fun. I certainly will. It's great to be here with you and, of course, with my beloved Samuel, as always. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Let me just say a word of introduction, which is to say Linda Groves Bonder is herself a teacher. She's been working with Samuel for many years, and they have co-founded the Human Sun Institute to further developing this work that we've been speaking about, and uh, she also is a founding member of Ken Wilber's Integral Institute. They've been working side-by-side for years, helping others, literally empowering others and facilitating the awakening process for hundreds and hundreds of people, and I really don't doubt that through this this radio show, the TV show that we also did, and by the way, we're about to air it again, I believe it's next Tuesday, in honor of your being on the radio show, both of you, I uh, selected that interview to air again on A Better World uh, TV here in New York City. So wonderful. I'm glad to say that. Yeah, That's exactly. Wonderful. That will be on May 28th at 10:30 uh, Eastern Standard Time. On all the information is at our website at betterworld.tv. So please, Linda, why don't you just jump jump in with feet first and uh, what you were hearing um, and pick up. I actually had asked Saniel about the the four Fs, <laughs> you know, and uh, as a way of helping people understand more of your work. Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, since you had addressed that question to Samuel, I would uh, pass the baton back to him so he can describe what the four Fs are, and then I will intermingle some comments and uh, additions along the way. Okay, fine. Very good. Very good. Okay, okay. Samuel, you want to go ahead and say what they are, and then we can discuss it. Okay, sounds yeah. good. And uh, what I'll do first is just to say a couple of other things about my beloved Linda, and that is that in addition to being, uh, as, as Ken Wilber uh, said of her, a brilliant teacher in her own right uh, in our work, um, Linda is also a very accomplished uh, singer, songwriter, and fine artist. 
niche, and uh, mm. she has a couple of much beloved uh, CDs out. CDs? I, in fact, you gave me one, Linda. I remember yes. it well. Yes. Thank you. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and also she's she's uh, she's now uh, finding a great calling to uh, uh, paint, and so she's she's going into a, a lot of painting work, and we're we're just Beautiful. thrilled and very excited about it. So oh, we both have this kind of artistic edge of, of what we do as well as our spiritual teaching. Yes, indeed, indeed. I would really say there's a continuum here. That's right, exactly. Yeah, Thank you for acknowledging much. that. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, the, the four Fs, uh, what we've noticed is that when people are confronted with difficulties in their uh, their lives, and especially for people who are, Working on self-development, personal transformation. When they uh, when they encounter qualities in themselves, uh, emotional reactions, uh, intense desires, cravings, whatever, that seem to be the enemy of their quote-unquote higher states of spirituality, uh, they tend to relate in one of uh, four ways. I mean, there are other things that could you know, that happened, but a lot is sure. in these four departments. Fundamentally. The four, the four Fs. They mm-hmm. either try to fight that thing. Let's say it's anger, you know, sudden impulse of great anger. Uh, they fight it. They try to fix it. They try to flee from it by going to perhaps a higher state or activating a practice that will take them away. Or mm-hmm. uh, I like to say it in, in the Facebook age, they try to friend it. Um, yes. But they they friend it, meaning they feel into it a little bit, but from mostly a safe observing, witnessing stance that still is buffered from really encountering that quality itself. Mm-hmm. And in our work, we uh, recommend instead, and we'll talk more about the kind of the context in which someone on a spiritual path can safely do this and and really have it be growth rather than just self-indulgence, we urge people to green light these qualities, to allow them to go into them deeply. And, And there is a mysterious power of transcendence that comes up uh, that Linda probably will, you know, will, will want to talk about also in place when you can go into it that way. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to fix it. You're not going to flee from it. You're not going to fight it. You're not going to Facebook-style friend it. But you are going to uh, meet it. You're going to allow the energy of it, the intensity of whatever it is, anger, profound sadness, sorrow, loneliness, uh, frustration, whatever that... Uh, feeling that we would call negative is to simply be present is that another way of putting putting it absolutely it it would be kind of a being present with your whole being with every part of who you are so Mm -hmm. the embrace of it is okay this is a difficult place here and i usually jump away from it and avoid it but something is here to teach me something this is part of who i am and so when an individual can actually see that and go deeper into it, there's a recognition process that kicks in. 
And as Samuel is pointing out, there's a, a transcending the effect of the issue in place. You you literally become it on a level that there is a release and a relief from the effects of it. So that okay. is a whole being uh, embrace and embodiment of the issue itself. So in other words, really just becoming the fear or becoming the judgments or whatever we considered, quote-unquote, negative emotions in our being. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so would you, you know, to step back from that for a moment, Linda, and just kind of look at the phenomenon of it, because at the end of the day, everything has kind of a, a somatic physiology to it. So it's like, mm. and, 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 and as well as an electrical impulse, because we're, we're electrical beings. So yeah. would you say that you are discharging or diffusing the energy that was so potent um, moments before? Yeah, that's actually a very good way of putting it. So much of the time when we get triggered, we can feel the energy coursing through our body, right? You know, there's lots right. of different ways that we can feel it and lots of different sure. ways that we express it in relationship to others. And so as you really allow yourself to even be with that, be with the energetic of it, and notice that these emotions are not wrong and bad. They are just what they are. And you embrace Mm -hmm. it and you green light it, as Samuel said. That's where the transformation comes in and that intensity of the energy diminishes and you can take a breath. There's an image of like a, a chokehold. You know, you take your hand over your throat and you can't breathe, right? Yeah. Well, that chokehold slowly releases, and you can actually take deep breaths even in the midst of being in the discomfort. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you made reference, or Samuel made reference to this idea of a release. So you are uh, there's a letting go of yeah. the whole process, I guess. Yes, that's really true. There's a process I I discovered, I guess you could say. It was actually revealed to me in a kind of like a in-between awake and a sleep reverie after I took a nap one time. It's a process we call six-step recognition yoga. And mm-hmm. part of that release or relief that we're talking about here in the transcendent aspect of the fifth step in the yoga is where you can just be with it fully, as I was saying. So the six steps of the yoga would be see it, feel it, live it, be it, transcend it, and then speak Mm -hmm. it along the way at appropriate moments. Mm -hmm. So this process of recognition is what actually allows you to fall more deeply into the release and the relief of the effects. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. That's beautiful. So it goes from being a place of reactivity to just being at one with whatever that emotion originally was. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Actually seeing the divinity in the emotion, (laughs) you know, being able to go, wow, you know, I'm a divinely human being here, and I can see spirit even in the midst of this emotion. I can be spirit even in the midst of this emotion. It's quite... Yeah, and I I want to kind of jump in on that. Uh, Please. The way that that spiritual divine quality breaks through, Mitch, 
yeah. is often much more simple and humble. You wouldn't necessarily think of it that way. What we'll hear people saying is things like, you know, I was right in the middle of that reaction that always just, you know, it just gets me every time. And somehow I felt like there's something fundamentally okay right in the middle of it. So it was like mm -hmm. both at the same time, and I knew I was okay. Right. And, and that's where uh, there's a kind of a, a secret sauce, if you will. Yes, uh-huh. Uh, to to our work that that really makes this possible, because you know you can practice and you can try to do these six steps, uh, and people do that and they have good success with it, but it becomes a lot more effective and spontaneously self empowered when people are plugged in with our Waking Down and Mutuality community, with teachers. We have these marvelous now, like I think more than three dozen uh, authorized teachers of this work. And at the heart of the whole thing is a transmission of that great heart mystery with a capital H. Mm -hmm. That 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 beingness that, that is down, that, that is woke down, so to speak, that that is no longer yeah. under the uh, limiting illusion of a fundamental split in reality between spirit and matter, God and ego, positive, yeah. negative, light and dark. And yeah. so that transmission, what happens with that transmission in our work is that uh, those who are more advanced practitioners and who are are trained and skilled in, in managing the, the the conduction of it, so to speak, uh, help those who are aspiring, what happens is it's not like it's just coming from someone on high. In fact, you know, we're into democratizing this thing, so right. we're not into pedestals right. around here. Uh -huh. But there is, there is a recognition of, you could say, a functional hierarchy in the midst of uh, of a of an equality in being, an existential equality. Yes. And there the, are there are distinctions to be recognized. They are, and they're very important, and we we really honor that. And at the same time, what we see is that there's a kind of in, uh, transmission. What takes place is really in the between. So it's as if the pilot light in the aspirant's heart has the gas turned up by the, the the radiant presence of a qualified teacher transmitter uh, or another awakened member of the community uh, or a mentor of our work although really the you know we do rely on the teachers to to be the primary we could say purveyors what happens yeah. then is that over time people discover that they are coming alive and awake in a new way that really doesn't depend on how well they're doing their practices that morning, so to speak. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a spontaneous opening or flowering of that heart of hearts nature of our being that is simultaneously uh, as divine as it is human innately, and now it's moving from being latently divine to being truly self-aware. Yes. 
very interesting. It's sort of like in Zen, the sudden school and the gradual school actually meet at the same point. It, it can be that the practices are preparing someone for a sudden realization, but in some way there was nothing sudden about it at all, except that it is <laughs> certainly experienced, you know, as a sudden or spontaneous moment in realization. You know, yes, I think there's yes. an interplay between the preparing of the soil for a seed to grow, if you will, <clears throat> and then the moment when the seed bursts through the soil and begins to really sprout. And it doesn't appear until it's broken through that surface that it's there at all, you know, and yeah, then there's the sudden moment, you know. Yeah, that that. I, I feel like Peter Sellers all of a sudden in the film being there. You know, everything was a gardener. His name was Gardener. Everything was I, a gardening metaphor. Right. Yeah, we have a, a word for that um, that immersion, and it's called oozing. <laughs> sometimes yeah. We, sometimes we talk like to individuals that. who are in an awakening process, and they clearly know that they're awakening, that they're making strides and changes and evolving along the way. And the the aha moment, the actual realization moment, hasn't quite occurred yet, but they are oozing into that. Mm. They're learning, they're evolving, constantly evolving. Another thing I want to say about the realization, however, even after that moment happens, or when you absolutely can no longer deny the fact that you have had a conscious embodied awakening, such as second birth, which is what we teach, then you land you land so fully into that confidence of of being that, and you can track back and no longer can you doubt the fact that something very profound has happened that in some ways has completely changed your life, and in other ways you're still the same person, exactly the same divinely human being with all yeah. the faults foibles and all of the broken places oh, and all yeah. of the joyful places. <laughs> but see, after birth, we always like to say that it doesn't stop there. In any process of realization, it doesn't stop there. We are constantly evolving and growing and moving and relating. Well, I want to ask you about that, Linda. Just I want to let everybody know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin, and we're on every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and Daylight Time. And uh, now we are spending this last part of today's show with Samuel Bonder and his lovely wife and co-partner, uh, Linda Groves Bonder, and they are the founders of Waking Down in Mutuality, is profound, spiritualizing, evolving practice that we're spending our time speaking about here. And uh, if you would, first, Daniel, give us a little idea of what you've been doing with the Shift Network so people could tune into what you're doing there as well. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we we uh, uh, The Shift Network is... Um, an organization that has arisen uh, in the last. We've had uh, Stephen Dynan on the. Uh, we've, oh, we've had, had him Stephen. on the okay. show as so well. I don't need to, I don't need yeah. to introduce Shift Network. Well, oh, it's as, okay. As, <laughs> what's that? It's fine. Go ahead. Okay. Well, 
is founded by actually a, a longtime friend of ours, Stephen Dynan, and his wife, David Haley Mitchell. And in the last four years, it has really shot into prominence, uh, convening many of the thought leaders and transformational teachers and healers uh, in many different fields, as well as people who are specifically spiritual teachers, to help facilitate uh, a great shift in human consciousness, culture, awareness, and society. And at this point, uh, <laughs> excuse me, the, the Shift Network, I think, has over a quarter of a million people on their mailing list. Mm. And um, Stephen and his team invited Linda and me to uh, present our work, the Waking Down work, um, and the the uh, we're just this week, uh, as a matter of fact, today, just in 25 minutes, uh, the, there's actually a, a pre-recording that we made of uh, an interview that Stephen did with Linda and me, uh, introducing uh, the title of it is Waking Down 101, How to Go Beyond Waking Up into Divine Embodiment, which is a, a great title for it. And we had a wonderful time uh, recording uh, this conversation with Stephen. He's, like you, a really great and a very wise and sympathetic interviewer. Mm. Uh, he also has had experience with our work and and with us as uh, uh, spiritual uh, coaches and and uh, mentors yeah. himself. Wonderful. And so we we give in that uh, uh, the preview call uh, that this is. It's about an hour in which we have conversation about some of the things we've been talking about today, but from a slightly different perspective and with mm -hmm. Stephen's particular orientation and other yeah. aspects of the teachings as well. Mm -hmm. And then that that then is a precursor to, or it's an introduction to, and a welcome to people to uh, strongly consider uh, joining us for an eight-week uh, telecourse or eight-session telecourse that starts in early June and ends uh, toward the end of July uh, that's called Waking Down, Discovering the Divinity in Your Humanity and Becoming a Human Son. And oh, so we're very, we're very thrilled to be doing this. It's an honor to have uh, center stage on a Shift Network presentation. And Indeed. part of what's so exciting to us, Mitch, is that we know that we and our fellow colleague teachers and mentors in Waking Down and our whole community, we're really ready to share this marvelous blessing with uh, anyone else who would like to go beyond the seeking into the the found life and and have it activate your own blessings that much more fully. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, God. I like the way you put that, the found life, you know. That's great. Mm -hmm. Put well, that's truly aside. what it is. Stop. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's a, a real foundation in what you're saying there. It's it's beautiful. And I'm so glad, you two, that this is opening up, this flower, because in your own evolution, you've been really soldiers in the peace movement, if you will, the spiritual peace movement of uh, helping so many people move forward in their personal lives, which then becomes, of course, transpersonal, and they feel a call to be of service to the collective, to the species, if you will, to 
sentient life and that you are now able to reach so many more people so dynamically. I, I think it's a blessing, and as we say in Chinese, it's beshert. It was meant to happen. <laughs> That's Thank not you. really Mandarin. That is Yiddish. But <laughs> I'm sure well, that well, it, it, so it gets us up every morning with a passion to reach more people for that precise yeah. reason, Mitch. Sure. Everyone sure. to find themselves fully as fully as they possibly can to access their gifts and their help to others and make this world a better place. Yes, indeed. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed. I like that theme, Linda. I What's like that? that theme. <laughs> make the world a better place. In fact, yeah, I, really I like the like song to kind it of... says, right? <laughs> right, that's right. I want oh. to re-enter the stream here of... Uh, being a divine human and this idea that we have all of our foibles and weaknesses before awakening, before a second birth, and after, and in the space of reactivity. In other words, is there this, there's this idea of self-improvement, self-development and self-improvement where we are, you could say, fine-tuning our, on the level of personality, so that we are not as reactive, that we're more present moment to moment. We're not caught. I mean, what is a reaction other than being caught in the past and perhaps a fear of the future, you know, some anxiety? You know, and it happens so quickly, we don't yeah. even realize it's happening, but we're in the reaction, right? So yes. what I hear you saying, both of you, <clears throat> is that you're creating a sense of space and spaciousness around the reactivity, around the negative, what we would call negativity, around the anger, which can be very destructive, by the way. Anger can, you know, as they say, completely sink ships and burn bridges. So it's not a lightweight phenomenon. It could really change people's lives if it's not well managed. So what I hear you saying is that there are, we do have weaknesses afterward, we do have foibles, but there's also an evolution even on the level of personality. Is that a fair thing to say? Absolutely. Um, I would say that... And I say that, excuse me, there are spiritual teachers who completely, you could say, if you will, disrespect the level of personality in spiritual development and, and look at it, you know, as something lesser. So it's in that context, if you will, that I'm kind of posing the question. Right. Well, well, with that piece, yes, I think traditionally in some paths it has been um, more prominent to say just transcend those emotions, transcend those reactions, don't go there. You know, be the loving, compassionate, giving um, soul and being that you are. And, yes, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is that we are human. And we are in bodies, and we do have emotions, and we actually have reactions sometimes due to many reasons. We get our buttons pushed, in other words. That's right. And so instead of demonizing or making those, those buttons, those reactions, wrong and bad, what we, what we try to help individuals notice and be with is to embody that too, 
and find out the root of why yeah. the reactions are there, if, if that's even part of the process in the moment. Sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you just need to be with what is, being, what is arising and be authentic to that. Now, when mm-hmm. it's affecting another human being and you hurt someone, Daniel came up with a great concept called coconut yoga. <laughs> and what that is, hurt someone, you bow down to that person as if your head bows down to the pavement as if a coconut falling off of a tree. And you oh. hit them and you say, I'm sorry, how can we make this right? Let's work this. And so the coconut yoga is a piece of being able to take reactions that might have an effect on someone and turn it around into a real mutual healing. Totally. Yeah, totally. and uh, thank you, Linda, for, for bringing, uh, I get bringing that. that in. And, uh, you know, in, in reality, Mitch, and just to, uh, to, get, to get personally real here myself, yes. uh, I think it's safe to say that I've done more coconut yoga um, with more people in this work than anybody else, uh, you know, they they, uh, they used to accuse, uh, or maybe still do, uh, some people accuse uh, President Obama of, of an apology tour. I've actually done apology tours. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Um, because we, what we see is that there is, first of all, you know, and this goes back to um, the. Uh, the, the six steps of recognition yoga, I love what Linda was just saying. You can't live out or act out, say, anger, good example, just randomly anywhere. You've got to be mm-hmm. capable of a kind of disciplined choosing of when, how, and with whom you're going to get yeah. into these things more deeply so you can really kind of unlock that charge, discharge that binding energy in them. Yes, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, and what we see over time, and this is this is really important. I think it's very important for us to to say this. You know, in terms of this great fundamental healing of spirit and matter, this awakening of embodied consciousness that we call the second birth. Most mm-hmm. people who come into our work, whether they've been seeking for a long time or not. Uh, typically most people go through and stabilize that transformation within several months to several years. It's remarkably fast and reliable. I mean, we've just noticed this is how it's worked out. And yes. we're profoundly grateful that it's so. And, you know, in many ways it's a marvel given that people are used to spending lifetimes trying to get to enlightenment. Indeed. But, But the really, to me, moving piece of this is exactly the evolution of the personality beyond that. You know, another another of the myths about enlightenment is that you go into the state and then everything's happily ever after forever. Yes. And in, in this process, you go through changes and what winds up happening, and we're seeing this more and more in ourselves and the other the other teachers, the other long-term folks who've been in this awakeness for 5, 10, 15 years or more, that the personality does change. You do outgrow 
being anything like so easily triggered as you used to be. And so it's not, green lighting is not about being kind of resigned to nothing changing. It's not self-acceptance where it's like, oh, well, I guess I'll always be the same. It really is giving a green light to a deep, profound transformation of one's whole character over time. And it's a yes. beautiful thing to behold and participate in together. Wow. I'm yeah, so glad to hear all of that, Samuel. <laughs> I really do. And it corroborates uh, something I've been teaching people and sharing with others for a long time, which is enlightenment is really just the first step. I mean, honestly, it's more like nursery school or kindergarten for someone who's interested in such things. So maybe we'll call this show uh, Enlightenment 101. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm saying that because we all know here in this conversation that once one sees the wholer picture, once one opens up the heart, we then see how far we are, how unrefined we are as humans, and how Mm -hmm. far we need to go. And thank God we have the wakefulness with which to move forward on the path. Mm. Beautiful. Very well said. Yeah, thank you, Mitch. Thank you so much. Oh, of course, of course. But you, you, you know what I'm saying. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, now we can kind of get on with it because we're going to be conscious, conscientious human beings, yeah, you know, instead right. of, uh, you know, partial, blinded, unconscious uh, creatures, you know, mm-hmm. that are, you know, one step forward, three steps back. So, no, yeah. it, it's just a way of saying, I know I what you're saying about the refinement of the personality and dealing with that kind of, um, in a sense, you could say that we're modifying the personality. So reactivity is not what it was. I, I, let me put it this way. I remember having done uh, what in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition uh, is a a month-long sitting of, oh, God, 12, 14 hours a day. And I remember coming back to New York City, Samuel and Linda, after that from the far reaches of northern Vermont. And I listened to and heard everything through my heart. I didn't make an effort to do it. It was just that's where I heard people speaking. That's where I saw people's reactions and I saw their expressions. And I had no reactivity. It wasn't mm-hmm. something I planned or tried not to have. It, mm-hmm. just, it just sort of everything was so soft mm-hmm. and wakeful, you know, that I was just present with whatever was going on. And, you know, it was an awesome result. Yeah. Uh, and an unexpected one, by the way, of a process. Mm. And that's what I hear is happening with many of your students as well. Is our that a fair thing to say? It's a fair thing to say. Our students, our colleagues, uh, this really is a... Uh, a democratic uh, emergence that's taking place. Yes. Uh, it's 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 a tremendously co-creative uh, 
process, and we've got people all over the country and more and more around the world who are plugging into this, uh, and we find that young or old, male or female, from whatever culture, uh, the human heart, sure enough, um, knows n- knows true food when it yeah, when it gets right. that deep heart food. Uh, people know how to go for it, and um, I love I love by the way the just to go back to a couple of words you just used conscious and conscientious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great uh, pairing up of words. The one without the other is really incomplete. Yeah. And oh, the conscious yeah. part has to do with this profound awakening and integration and transformation. The conscientious has to do with bringing it into life, expressing our gifts, making a difference, and all of that because we know we're all in this together. We have you conscience because we're aware that we're not separate. I love that you drew the distinction between the two words, Daniel, because so much of the time people think that it's one and the same. It's not. That's right. Right. Ah, so and that's really important, beautifully spoken. Really true, really true. And now I want to give credit where credit is due because in my earlier years, uh, my main teacher was George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. And I was in the Gurdjieff work myself for a number of years, uh, directly, and he is the one that I learned that distinction from, and uh-huh. I see that our the whole how do I say spiritual new age movement toward an evolutionary consciousness they are always talking about consciousness, but not ever ever talking about conscientiousness and conscientiousness is actually rooted in the heart so it's a perfect uh idea for you to and your work and what? that's the way Gurdjieff described it you know mm-hmm. mind is conscious heart is conscientious and mm. the development of Beautiful. conscience is you know is what really makes a man or a woman and builds character otherwise you can be conscious of doing a lot of things in this life, and uh, it's not particularly pretty, you know. So I want to give homage to uh, pay homage mm-hmm. to Gurdjieff. Mm. Oh, <laughs> it is an idea he gave me. I, I felt so um, united with. I felt it was so important uh, a distinction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. Well, good. Well, you know, uh, uh, along those same lines, um, for me as the as the founder of our work, uh, my main lineage is two great heart masters, capital H, uh, mm-hmm. Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi of India and Avatar Adidas Samraj, uh, who uh, was American-born, uh, and they, they yes. both are, are no longer present bodily here. Um, yeah. But but part of what what is is opening up and going back to that mystery of the heart we're talking about yes. that these two great sages um you know I don't mean to say it in a demeaning way but wizards of of consciousness yes. um they recognized uh both of them Ramana in the early 20th century Adida in the later 20th century mostly mm-hmm. uh they recognized that the seat of the ultimate realization of consciousness, of divine spirit, 
mm-hmm. was actually situated in their hearts in a particular way that was not uh, in in the yogic language. We talk about the heart chakra in the center of the chest, and this was yes. a place over on the right side of the chest. Both of them also found in medical anatomy books, and I, I did some research on this and found out it was only discovered in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. that the source of the heartbeat, the seat, where the heartbeat originates in all mammals and certainly all human beings, mm-hmm. is actually on the right side of the chest. It's in the upper right chamber, the atrium on the back wall. It's called the sinoatrial node. And so what we have here, and this is in the Upanishads. I mean, literally, I've got it over here on my altar in my office, a quote from from the ancient scriptures of India. There is a light that shines beyond all things on earth, beyond us all, beyond the heaven, beyond the highest, the very highest heavens. This is the light that shines in our heart. And so what, what is happening now is that the divinely human spirit uh, and it's bigger than just our movement. It it appears to be something that's so many people are talking about embodiment, about bringing spirit down, about uniting spirituality with everyday life. There is this great evolutionary trend that is activating our consciousness, our spirit, and our conscientiousness from that whole heart essence of who we are. And my hunch is that over the years and decades, we're going to see more and more people coming alive and awake this way through whatever schools and traditions, certainly ours, waking down is one of them, and being empowered to bring forth their gifts, their blessings in their unique ways. Uh, it's just such an exciting time. Mm, so be it. Odd well, Beautiful. That's beautiful, Samuel. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, may I say. Thank <laughs> and, uh, you. I really think that you're right on it. You're right on it. And that that physiological point of the location of the locus, like lotus, of where mm-hmm. the light comes into the heart is utterly beautiful. I think we really should be... <laughs> Words start to be funny. I, I think we should be very mindful of that part of the heart. <laughs> <laughs> very well said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hate to say we're almost out of time here. I've been just enjoying this as much as when I had you on a Better World TV. It's um, it's so rich talking to both of you, and uh, um, I feel we we build a space of love in this in this context together, don't we? Yes, indeed. indeed we do. Thank you for saying that, Mitch. It's really it's such true. a great pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, thank you so much for this opportunity to reach oh gosh, out to yes. you, to reach out to your audience. We always love to say blessings on your journey, no matter where it leads you. Follow your heart, you know, and that's yes. that's it. Beautiful, beautiful, Linda. Thank you both so much. I truly, truly appreciate what you're both up to and the gift that you are giving to humanity. Your commitment is awesome. It's been going on for decades, and, you know, nothing stops you. You're democratizing it. You're bringing it out into the world, and 
I'm I'm grateful for the work you're doing. Oh, well, thank you, Mitch. Um, if I may offer a, a practical uh, uh, offering to uh, our listeners. In 10 seconds, you may, honor. if you could do it quickly. Give you a website yes. for sure as well. Very quickly, just to say, well, particularly for the Shift Network, uh, the free yes. um, introductory call, uh, if people go to um, the shiftnetwork.com forward slash waking, W-A-K-I-N-G, down, D-O-W-N, all We're one word. We're about to run out of time, Daniel. I'm sorry? That's beautiful. No, we're Had literally running out of time, Good. and I want yeah. people to have all of that. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, both of you. God bless you. Thank you for <laughs> Thank being on you. the show, and we'll we'll do it again. Okay, Great. wonderful. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye Bye-bye. now. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.